listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, I have a question I've never asked you. We've known each other for almost 10 years. I've never asked you this. So I want to ask you, are you a gambling man? Actually, I am not a gambling man. I am very adverse to gambling, but not for moral reasons, for financial ones. Okay. Now, are you willing to make a bet with me anyway? Is this going to be about Michigan, Ohio State? Oh, no. I don't bet on sports. That's that's a fool's game. Oh, okay. I have an over-under for you. Are you familiar with an over-under? Yes. Okay. So, my over-under is 10. It's it's by end of year, my, my belief is that we will have had 10 people named Jeff on this podcast other than yourself. So, oh. you, you want to take the over or the under? I'm going to take the under. Oh, you're going to take the under? Okay. <laughs> I think you're going to win that bet, actually. All right. So... We're introducing our guest today, who's also named Jeff. That's my reason for the over-under. Jeff Highland is joining us. Jeff, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and what you do, and we're going to just jump right in. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Unless he wants to take the bet. Maybe he wants to take the bet, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks, Jason, and thanks, Jeff. So I am Jeff Highland. I'm a partner at CR3 Partners. We're a corporate restructuring and turnaround firm. All right. Yeah. So listeners hang tight because they're like, well, well, this isn't relevant to me because we're not turning around. We're growing. We're healthy. We have positive cash flow, all that good stuff. Mm. Hang tight. All right. So let's jump in there. What's a turnaround? I asked you this question in the setup. It seems like such a simple concept, but we're turning it around. What does that even really mean? And when do companies need turned around? I know there's the obvious ones. They're, you know, they're teetering on bankruptcy, right? But but I'm sure that that's just one scenario of many. Yeah, that's 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 one of, of a ton of different types of scenarios where where we come in a situation. Some of my clients are cash flow positive, doing fine. They just need interim management. So we provide both interim management as well as consulting to the management team to help the company do better. But it depends on their life cycle, where they're going, what their objectives are. Sometimes companies are cash flow positive, but just need some help on some issues. Sometimes companies are burning cash and certain stakeholders, let's say a lender, is concerned and concerned the direction the company's going. So we then get involved to improve the, the net outcome of the situation. So when you're coming in, are you brought in to fix, probably the answer is going to be yes, to fix cash flow, to fix revenue, to fix profit, to fix value? Like what is the lens? What are you usually being asked to, to solve for? More times than not, we are, well, we're certainly doing multiple things. So more times than not, the objective is to be positive cash flow after debt service. That speaks to the viability of the business. Oftentimes, there's a question of business viability. Is there is there a reason for this company to exist? And we have to assess that. But there's a whole laundry list of things that we work with and evaluate to improve the business or improve the long-term value for stakeholders. So, Jeff, when you come into a situation, and it sounds like in, in any number of different situations, One of the things that has to be high on your list is determining what the core value of this company or entity is, because I would think you have to get an organization down to its essence and strengthen that essence. How do you do that? It's different for every single company, every single industry. I wish I could say there's a simple formula, but you have to understand 
first off at a more at the more basic level of the customers and what the value proposition is for the customers. Why do they go to that company? Why do they buy from that company? And once you understand that, then you can build from there because it's not just the expense structure. The classic world of, of restructuring is, you know, reduce those costs, but it, you're not going to cost cut your way to prosperity. That's not going to give you long-term prosperity. You have to grow the top line. So how do you go to the top line? Well, you find other customers, you increase the amount that you're able to charge to those customers you currently have, and you grow the business from that perspective. It seems to me that the core value, as, as Jeff described it, is different from the perceived enterprise value or, or you know, economic value. It's like core value feels really guttural to me. It feels very like, really, like you said, why does this organization even have a right to exist? Why does it even need it? What makes it special and different than anyone else? And that's like the essence of what would ultimately drive objective value, I guess, you know, stuff that people tie ones and zeros and, and dollars bills to. How do you articulate those two things? Am I on the right thread in terms of how you think about this? Like, do you see these as sort of separate things or, or tied at the hip or, or no? You know, I think that the direction and the objective is all kind of tied together. It's hard to segregate a core value of, of what the value proposition of a business is, is they're going to market versus the direction they're going versus their financial status. It's pretty difficult to segregate those into like completely different things because they all wrap together as to how you go to market. Understand that uh, value varies and who you're responsible to varies depending upon the financial status of the company. So for example, if you're in the, there's something called the zone of insolvency, meaning you're not able to pay your debts as they're coming due. And in that zone of insolvency, your responsibility shifts to the creditors. You're trying to make sure the creditors get paid and they're the ones you're most concerned about the value for. So it's, it just depends on the status of the business, the financial condition of the business, the, the industry of the business, you know, what the owner's objectives are for the business. And if they want to have a quick exit versus a long-term build and growth. So, you know, it just, it varies. It, it, I don't know if there is a single answer to your question. You specifically use the phrase stakeholders. Yeah, and you talked a little bit there. Talk to us about that because you talked about value for stakeholders and obviously that's stakeholders is, is pretty broad and inclusive. So when you think about value in a turnaround, you're thinking about, okay, how do we grow value again? If, if value has been, assumingly has been, was being destroyed and you talk about stakeholders, how, how do you think about that? Stakeholders are anybody who has a stake in the outcome of the business. So people first think about shareholders. Okay, you know, those are the owners of the business. But the other stakeholders that have that, that interest in the outcome can be the lenders. It can be the employees. It can be the suppliers. It can be the customers. Everybody has a stake in the outcome of this business and therefore they're they're called stakeholders as opposed to say shareholders which you more normally might think of if you're talking about well, what's the value of the business how do we increase the value for shareholders now, this is a curiosity question are you seeing a shift this is a broader big picture a shift in more interest in understanding that broader value versus maybe a more 
narrow view of only value for shareholders as it was classically taught in business school to all of us, you know, 30, 20, 30 years of the last 20, 30 years. Are you seeing this kind of like conversation shift to be like, wait a minute, we have to think about value to everyone, you know, beyond that. And, and is that a thing? You know, I don't know that it really is. I think that, you know, it depends on your perspective as you look at the business. Understanding stakeholder value is important in my world as a restructuring person because you need to understand who's going to receive the ultimate benefit from the efforts. And if you realize that the lenders, for example, are the only ones that are going to get value out of this business, well, they're a stakeholder, not a shareholder. So it's more of a terminology. I don't think that there's a shift going on afoot or anything that's happening is changing on, you know, it's just a terminology issue. I think more than anything. There is a change though that's happening slowly, I would say, in the general economy and that there are more companies that are starting to become in trouble. Government money has dried up now and those companies that were struggling before that got by thanks to say, for example, PPP loans, you know, they're not, no longer have that opportunity. So now suddenly they're, they've lost money and they're trying to figure out a way to the next stage. And certain stakeholders are getting concerned. Like, for example, a lender might be getting concerned. So we are actually seeing some increase in that level of activity in troubled companies. Jeff, I have this image of you showing up at a company's front door dressed like Darth Vader. <laughs> That's not fair. That's not fair. But... I would think from an employee perspective, sometimes that's how it could be perceived. So I have two questions for you. The first one is, what are companies doing or not doing that gets them into the situation where you show up at their front door? Answer that one, then I'll come back with the the second one. Okay. So should I... You know, a company's problems can be external. So their industry can go through a crisis that's causing their problem. There can be uh, a problem with international freight forwarding. The company can't fix international freight forwarding. If they're living off of products from China, I had a client last year that imported bicycles. Well, all those are coming from China. They can't fix that in the short term. So, you know, crises can be created externally. Crisis can all be also be created internally, whether it's a lack of focus, a lack of aggressively going after the market. But, you know, it's always incumbent upon management to respond to those situations. And so without an adequate response, that's oftentimes what I see whenever I walk in the door. Inertia is my enemy. The number of times I've heard people say, you know, I ask them, well, why do you do X? And their response is, well, that's just the way that we've always done. So inertia is, is a, that inertia created by, well, this is what we've always done. That's usually an enemy of a, of a turnaround person. So we're classically known as a change engine. We're changing what's going on. We're changing the cost structure. We're changing how you're going to market. We're changing the value proposition to customers. You know, we're, we're changing the capital structure. So maybe the company needs more cash and reduce its debt. So we're changing the capital structure. You know, there's a lot of things that we're changing, but in essence, that's our responsibility is to change what's happening in the business to make it more financially successful and long-term, long-term value creation. 
So you said, and this is my second question, you said you can't cut your way to prosperity, to creating value, and you come in and you change. Tell me a little bit about how you think when it comes to eliminating that market-focused inertia and expanding the way people think about the markets that they serve. Yeah, that's at the heart of part of what I do. And that doesn't say happen on, for all structuring turn on people. That's generally what I always look at. It's at that market that defines where they're going and, and how they're going about it. So if you can find, for example, different customers, if you can find different uses of the product, if you can implement you know, ESG and suddenly that creates a buzz about the product or some kind of environmentally friendly solution that everybody then comes back and says, wow, that's great, I love it. And maybe the industry's had pushback on that environmental challenge. There, there's all kinds of ways to do it. And I've used, I think, most, most of them in my career. So for example, one time I was running a company, there were a lot of customers that I felt like weren't getting touched. A lot of potential customers are old customers that weren't ordering product. And we had a terrific customer service department. Just, they were just fantastic. However, I didn't feel like that they were fully utilized. And so I said, okay, I'm gonna take them. And I went to them and said, I want you to be telemarketers. And I gave them a script to follow and what to say and spiff them for their sales opportunities that they generated. And then we closed and gave them some discount programs on products. So they had something you know interesting to talk about and then gave them each a list of companies to call. It took about, and there were four of them, it took about a week. And the most senior of the person, that was like 10 in the morning, I'll never forget it. And she clenched her fists together, stuck them over her head and stood up like she had just won a stage in the Tour de France and screamed out and said, I just paid for Christmas. <laughs> oh my God. These, they were just unbelievable. They, they all like gather around her. Well, what did you do? Which part of the decision tree did you talk about? You know, how did you sell it? Who did you, who did you talk to when you called and, and did you discount it or not? And they became a force to contend with. They were on fire and I increased their spiff and they all, they all made a, a lot of money as a result of that. But, you know, it's just it's just something like that that changes how you're going to market as opposed to, say, continually going to the same customers over and over and over again. You know, I tried to look at it a little differently and said, OK, well, there's a lot of potential customers out there. Let's expand that. Let's reach them. And how do we reach them? You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. So that's super interesting, by the way. Um, I, I, I'm shifting gears on you a little bit because I, I, I want to go back to, in the setup, you talked a lot about 
value drivers and how they're different in services firms than they are in, in, in maybe product-based organizations. So I'd like you to kind of talk a little bit about that, like maybe to, from your experience, having kind of been through this and helping organizations get back on a path to value creation, maybe when they fell off one for whatever reason, external problems, as you said, internal problems, you know, at the end of the day, like what's different in a services firm versus somewhere else from your perspective, if you're trying to grow value again? Maybe for the first time, who knows? <laughs> yeah, so the, <laughs> value creation is depends uh, oftentimes on industry. And I know you've had valuation person on here talking about that, but the value drivers, the valuation drivers can come in different, different levels. So for example, professional services firms can oftentimes be valued based on just a multiple of revenue, one times revenue, two times revenue, or some, something like that. You get to a manufacturer and someone's coming in, they want to understand, well, what as a buyer, the buyer wants to know what's what's my cash flow? What's my cash flow I'm going to get out of that? And therefore they go to EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. And that's a proxy for cash flow. You make adjustments to that to say, well, this is your ongoing. We had unusual items in that. So you have adjusted EBITDA. And then there's a multiple of that. You can do discounted cash flows. There's there's different there's different valuation techniques, but oftentimes a buyer it will be industry dependent upon what the value drivers are. So you know you may be in a professional services firm, and the best thing you can do if you really want to pop up your value, you increase your revenue, and you look at your service offerings. Maybe you want to tweak them some. You know, maybe that your limitation is you have a lot of opportunities. You don't have enough people to deliver on your opportunities. So you're out. Then you, you Dharma better start hiring people if you want to increase your value to do that. Because otherwise it's just lost business and you'll never get it back. There's a one-time shot. If you're a manufacturer, you may say, well, the best thing I can do at this juncture is to just take costs out. I mean, I'm going to reduce my purchasing costs. I'm going to reduce my manufacturing costs. I'm going to implement, let's say, for example, robotic arms in the public company that I ran when I was two and a half years out of the industry. We implemented robotic arms and those robotic arms eliminated six jobs. We ran two shifts a day. So, you know, it took a lot of costs out of the business. So, you, you know, it depends on your industry and how you're creating value that will determine your ultimate value. So I have a conceptual question for you off that. What's the underlying assumption there? Is there an assumption that when a services firm is transitioned, that the acquirer will be able to drive profitability if it's not profitable? And the inverse of that, that you know, if I were buying a, a product company, if it's already efficient and profitable and delivering earnings, I can grow it. So it's like, you hear what I'm saying? Like, it's like, is it just two ways of looking at the world? Way, way one is I can drive profitability against something that's already scaled. Way two is I can drive scale against something that's already profitable. Does that make sense? It does. And, and it depends on the situation, but you're exactly right. It, every buyer looks at an acquisition and says, how can I do it better? Yeah. And of course, one of the most famous and greatest lies in the world is there'll be no changes after acquisition closing. <laughs> <laughs> if you hear that, don't believe it. It's not going to happen. And so what they're trying to do is they're saying, okay, for example, they may say, well, you've got a great customer base. You know, you're selling into 
Walmart. We've had a heck of a time getting into Walmart. Okay. You know, that could be suddenly they're putting their product, you know, on the Walmart shelves where they couldn't get in before, but they're going in via the acquisition. It could be that they're looking at the cash flow from this business. Oh man, these guys really have it figured out. They really have it figured out. So we want to just live off of their cash flow. This is like a huge win for us. It could be that, all right, well, you know, they do basically all the exact same things that we do. And, you know, we're going to just do it better. So for example, I was a part of the team that bought a cookie company here in Chicago. And we bought it from a very, very large cookie and biscuit company. But they had a very large plant and we didn't want that large plant. It was underutilized. And I didn't think we could make money with that large plant. So what would he do? We didn't buy the facility. We bought the routes. We bought the recipes. You know, we bought the sales team, but we didn't buy the plant and the people and the equipment. We just outsourced that manufacturing the product to another entity. Our pricing was based on the growth of that. So literally we closed and we were very positive cash flow at closing. And then we made money that way and then ultimately sold yeah. it to another cookie company. So to think, coming back to something you've always said, Jeff, it's like you, you saw value in changing the business model. You looked at the business model and said, well, wait a minute. If we change this business model, we can create value very, very quickly. Smart buyers do that. That is exactly what a smart buyer does. And it doesn't matter whether it's professional services or it's manufacturing or something else in between. Smart buyers will look at it and they'll, they, are, they know their business. <laughs> There's a reason why they're growing via acquisition. And they recognize that their value creation can be exponentially jumped by, by doing acquisitions. They eliminate a competitor, they whatever their whatever their reason, their logics are. They can go in and, you know, let's say it's a elimination of a competitor. Well, maybe suddenly they can increase their prices because they're not fighting against each other. They fight every day against one another and they're not fighting. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons and strategies behind acquisition and therefore the growth and the value creation that they can do. What's important is for if you're the seller of that business to recognize that's what the buyers, you know, likely has. So whether that means for your employees, it means for, you know, the owner, it means for whatever, you know, that way you can better capitalize on that, on that opportunity. Interesting. All right, Jeff, we're running short on time. So I want to do this. I do, I do this frequently. Is there a burning platform question that you have for Mr. Hyland that we have not asked him? I do have a question. Before we lose him. Mr. Hyland, I was, I was just thinking, I mean, do I have just one? I, I think I just had three others pop into my head. And let's talk about all three. I'll keep it to one. I, I could have made another bet on the over-under of how many questions you would have had, Jeff. I would have, I would have won by picking the over every time, no matter what number I put on it. Right. So, Mr. Hyland, you know, as we record this, you know, there's talk of recession. And I think when we move into recessionary times, you know, there can be a shakeout of the weaker firms. And, and you even said as much earlier. What can firms do now to protect that core value creation engine without falling into the trap of inertia? I know what creates value as a firm, and I want to protect that. But to me, in, in listening to you speak, there's a real fine line or balance between protecting that core 
and becoming complacent and falling into inertia. So enlighten us on, on how you maintain that balance, particularly going into a recession. What I have, so I've spoken to several companies about this and several that are actually not, not troubled and in a variety of industries, including in service. And I think what you have to look at is not today, but what it looks like tomorrow. You have to look a little bit out. So it's one thing to say, well, we're in a recession as a country. And if your service that you're providing is in essence kind of recession proof, people need it, you're just going to always have whatever that is, then you need to look at your business of saying, all right, well, I'm always going to need it. Let's say, for example, you are a repair, you have a repair shop. That's what you do. It's a nice service business. Things are great. And yet you need to have people to do that work. And you say, well, what does a recession really mean? Well, chances are that people are going to hold on to their products, whatever you're repairing longer, as opposed to just buying a new one. So therefore, you might have a pickup in volume. We'll start to be prepared for that. Start to think about that. Also, what's happening in the country, there's wage inflation, not a little, a lot, a whole lot of wage inflation. So then I would suggest to them that, well, okay, you know, you don't want to lose your key people to a competitor or a different industry. They're going to go work at, you know, the Amazon warehouse. You don't want to lose them for that. So proactively think about what you're paying your people. Then think about what you're charging for your services. So what, what's your hourly rate that you're charging? Because gee, guess what? If you don't address that now, you're going to be scrambling going, oh man, oh man, we're going to have to pay, you know, everybody more, you know, everybody gets a 20% increase. Oh, wait a minute. You know, we don't have the profitability to absorb that. Then what do you do? So you start planning yourself ahead of time so that you're not caught in that crisis and having to call in somebody saying, well, the bank really forced this consulting firm on us or whatever. That's the way I would frame it with people. It depends on your industry, but think about it ahead of time. Think about, well, okay, what are the different things that can happen to me and relative to what's happening in the world, what's happening in my industry? And some of the things you control and some you can't. If you can't control it, it doesn't matter. You still have to have a response. That's your responsibility as a manager of the business. You still have to have some way to, to maximize the value for the business. That's actually how I would talk to clients, potential clients, just friends who have businesses. That's why I talk to them all the time. And it's now, it's more important now than ever as we are, I believe, heading to a recession. And again, it doesn't mean though that a professional services firm is, it may not impact them at all. Then zero impact. But you better be thinking through those issues. You know, it's funny as you say that one of our potential upcoming guests, I remember there's a great quote of his from a business journal article about their business performance. And his (laughs) quote was, there's a recession, but we chose not to participate. (laughs) And and his his view was, he's like, you know, we can control our own destiny within reason here. And so we're not, we're going to find our, our path forward regardless. So I like the way that you ended that kind of this notion that it's like, you know, lift your head up, look out in front of you, where are things headed? Where could they be headed? And what do you have to do to be successful in, in whatever, you know, comes to be, I guess. Firms are definitely getting fair warning this go around, aren't they? Yes. Uh, this recession talk has been around for a long time. I've been talking about it since 
January of this year. I'm just saying, I, I just looked at it and said, I'm just not sure with, with all the different major issues going on, whether they're, you know, the war in Ukraine or inflation, wages, COVID, you start talking about all the different factors that go in, you know, international freight forwarding crisis, domestic, which is getting worse. Domestic shipping and logistics is getting way worse. And so, you, you know, you got to kind of think about all those and say, I just, with all those happening, it's not just one thing, it's multiple things. It's really hard to see how we're going to avoid our and just the question of how deep it is and how long it lasts. Of course, the plain thing I always say is when you've got that litany of things, you know, and most of the people that listen to this podcast are, you know, leaders or marketers and consulting firms. This is your time. This is the time you are built for is because this is the window when clients have the most problems. They have the most challenges, the most questions, the most concerns, and they need objective advice more than ever. So it's yeah, like, true. you know, for all those of you listening to this, I lean into the moment because, you know, whenever it starts to get a little fuzzy and a little bit confusing. That's when your value is greatest. So Jeff, I want to thank you for joining us. You know, you've pushed the over under up to seven or eight. So I'm, I'm well on my way to winning my bet. Um, I just got to get, get a couple other Jeffs on here. I know plenty, so it's not going to be a problem. We're going to get that to 12 or 15 by end of year. And and I will have won the, the bet. Jeff, Jeff didn't even commit to the, really what he was betting me. So I'm just in it for the pride, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jason, Jeff, I, I appreciate it. This is fun. And Hopefully, you know, we all learned a little bit from each other. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Mr. Hyland. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, oh.